So we're, yeah, we're at the second part of our vision series, 2017, and looking at the second part of our vision, which is, you can see on the front page of the booklet, the, the words of it, imagine a church community whose active and transformative presence was dispersed in the community like yeast in dough. And so we knew when we planted Mary Creek Anglican that because we didn't own any property, uh, the only locations where we would do church events and church activities would be either people's houses in public spaces or in rented um, spaces. So like our playgroups are in community halls. Our um, concert the other, last Saturday was in the town hall. We made in a school hall. Even the office is a rented space. And so we thought, well, let's make a virtue of that. Um, churches who meet in um, church buildings are always talking about, oh, we need to be more outward focused. We need to, you know, not just expect the world to come to us. But the advantage of a church plan is that you're forced to be in that situation, to be kind of um, using community spaces. And so, so the, act, the active and transformative part um, came from, a, you know, one of Jesus' parables about the kingdom, kingdom of God being like yeast in dough, and, and that um, we, we, for us, what does that mean? It means a whole lot of things. And today we're focusing on what, it, what does it mean in terms of Christian love, loving your neighbour, which is really the, um, the heart of the transformative presence of the, of the body of Christ, the church. So we, we were looking at the Good Samaritan, one of the most famous stories in the Bible so famous that it gets talked about in you know, the news, in the media, and you all know it back to front. So let's have a look at it. Um, it begins with uh, a lawyer, a character much like many people you would know, even many of you might be like this in this room, a kind of a religious know-it-all who um, is, is, is fairly well-educated and wants to take Jesus on in public um, and have a bit of an argument uh, he's wanting to put the Lord to the test, it says. Um, so what must I do to in- inherit eternal life, he says to Jesus. Come on, answer that one, Rabbi. Um, it doesn't sound like he was particularly earnest at first. Um, he's trying to get Jesus to make a gaffe. Perhaps he was even a spy from the Jewish court. Who knows? Perhaps he's just showing off. In some ways, Jesus had made an impression on this lawyer. He'd known about Jesus. Um, He'd seen him perform miracles just with the touch of a hand. He's an intriguing man, this Jesus, thinks the lawyer. He'd probably noticed the love radiating from him. Whenever Jesus walked around, this lawyer would have seen from a distance very unusual people hanging around him, sick people, um, diseased people, Um, shameful people, people who are not usually the kind of people that you would spend time with. And this intrigued the lawyer. They gathered around him in all their awkwardness, hoping that Jesus would change their life. And, And the lawyer had seen many of those people's lives changed. And when Jesus spoke, he talked intimately about his Father in heaven. So he seemed to know God in a way that no other people had known God. And so the lawyer was intrigued about this man. He wasn't any old rabbi. So he's trying to challenge Jesus and say, you know, I want to put you to the test if you think you're so good. So the lawyer stood before Jesus. He'd asked this question and he started thinking to himself, 
But this internal conversation just started happening in his head. His inner voice, you know when that happens? You have a conversation with yourself. When something like this, if, when, if Jesus is the real deal, then I'm going to have to change my life. I'm not going to be able to be a dry sort of religious scholar anymore who can quote the Bible but does not care about the poor. I'm not going to be able to be an arrogant intellectual who just lives for myself anymore and who doesn't associate with boring people and plebs of the mainstream. I'm not going to be able to be this middle-class rich person that I am in my high-culture bubble anymore if Jesus is the real deal, living in my villa, knowing full well that down the road there are people living in slums. I can't go on being a priest, he thinks to himself, with, with my servant girl who cleans my, my prayer kneeler each day before I do my devotions. I don't even know her name. I'm going to have to change the way I live. I hope, I hope I'm wrong about it. I hope I'm right about him, should I say. Uh, anyway, the internal conversation is going on in his head um, and it's troubling him. He can't go on being the same person if this charismatic carpenter from Nazareth, Nazareth is actually more than just a rabbi. So what can a person do, he thinks to himself? What can a person do to pull out the infection that's waging war inside my soul? Well, anyway, at the least, he can challenge Jesus to a duel, to an intellectual Bible duel, because that's what you do when you're a rabbi. Let's have a debate, he thinks to himself. We can quote scripture to each other and see who has the most convincing argument. Then when the whole thing's done, we'll probably reach a stalemate and I can just walk home and just live my life as I've always lived it. And so the debate begins. He puts his first card on the table. Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. What can I do to inherit eternal life? And it's a good place to start because if you're going to have a debate, a religious debate, let's just get to the heart of the issue. This is what everyone wants to know. And the thing is, there's been so much Hebrew scholarship on this, Greek scholarship on this. Jesus will really have to show his skills if he's going to win this debate convincingly. And if Jesus starts talking about faith, the lawyer thinks, I'm going to talk about sacrifice and like, you know, see, see what he has to say. He had it all worked out. And in case Jesus did start to win the argument, the lawyer knew he could just slip out of the crowd and just disappear anyway. The debate had started, but there he was staring in Jesus' eyes. And the, direction, the conversation didn't go in the direction he expected it to go in. It, it didn't. First of all, Jesus wasn't going to get caught in his trap. He didn't even reply to the question. Instead, he asked another question. And Jesus says, what's written in the law? Was, it, was Jesus suggesting to the lawyer, come on, man, this is obvious, you should know. Is Jesus being patronising? Here is this smart, wealthy Jewish intellectual being talked to as if this is a Sunday school class. Anyway, he gives a Sunday school answer. And kind of embarrassed, the lawyer says, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. 
And as the prophet Moses teaches us in Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbour as yourself. And as the Bible verses flowed out of his mouth, as they had done since he was a kid when he had to learn it from memory, something happened. There was a change that took place. You know how when you, uh, you know, you, you know the words to Amazing Grace, you've sung it so many times in church. And then there comes a time when suddenly something happens in your life and you're singing Amazing Grace and all the words sort of take on a new meaning and it just hits you in the heart. In our school, our, our motto was Fidelis Usque Ad Mortem, which comes from Revelation 2, verse 8. Faithful even unto death. And we wore it on our pockets, and it was on the wall, and it was on the books, it was everywhere. It's to the point where it didn't mean a thing. But can you imagine the boys at school at Ivanhoe Grammar in 1939 when war broke out, saying that motto, looking over on the wall at the honour board of the boys who died in World War I? Faithful even unto death. There are times in your life when words from the Bible can take on this meaning that they never took on before because of what's going on in our life. And that's what was happening to the lawyer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. The problem was for him, (laughs) he was saying it in front of the Lord. He was saying it in front of the person the only person who'd ever actually lived that out. He was saying it in front of the person who was the fulfilment of all of that. These words had been filed away in, the, in memory banks and they were gathering dust and now they were glaring him in the face, burning him in the spiritual iris, churning in his stomach, flowing through his main artery. You know, it was like, you know your heart starts beating. You know, it's pretty easy to say God is love, isn't it? God is love. We can say it. We know what it means, sort of. And it can sound meaningless, even you say it over and over again. God is love. But try saying it in the presence of Jesus. In the presence of Jesus, God is love actually becomes an accusation. Because we suddenly hear God is love spoken by the mentally ill Aboriginal woman who stands at the front of Coles asking for money that you avoid eye contact with. We, we hear the refugees crying God is love out from Manus Island and in unison as we concern ourselves with making sure we book the holiday house for the long weekend. We hear God is love spoken by the colleague at work that we've just backstabbed. We hear them all sing God is love because this is a saying that is about them as much as it is about God and it is about you. Because through their eyes, God is looking at us when we say God is love. And so what is going on for the lawyer when he has parroted these words from the Torah about his religion of love? And so what is going on for him? Jesus says to him in response, yeah, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So there's no back and forth. The kind of conversation has come to a quick end. There's no Plato. There's no Aristotle. There's no referencing the Talmud. There's no rabbi versus rabbi, argy-bargy. Jesus keeps the discussion to the point and concludes by saying, stop talking about love and start doing it. 
And the thing is, it's much easier to, to discuss a thing than it is to practice it. You can write an essay on neighbour love, but it's much harder to do neighbour love. Seems like the conversation is winding up. Perhaps it's got a bit boring. I don't know. The lawyer wanted to talk more about the meaning of life. Jesus put him back in his box. And it's obvious, thinks the lawyer. It's because Jesus is not really an intellectual. He, he's a tradesman, of course. He doesn't know the right frameworks to think, think intellectually. And of course, he's going to get me to do something practical. Then the lawyer thinks of one more question. I'm not, he thinks, I'm not going to let Jesus get out of it this easily. So who then is my neighbour, he says. Come on, Jesus, it's not, it's not exactly obvious. Is it the people who live in my street? Is it the people who work for me? Is it the beggar I pass on the way to my mother's house? If you can't make yourself clear, Jesus, I mean, you haven't really given me a proper answer. But once again... Jesus responds in a different way to what the lawyer was hoping for. He starts telling a story. And the lawyer thinks, stories? Mm. Stories are for old people sitting around under the fig tree. Stories are not for serious theologians. Jesus starts, a man was going down on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. A man, thinks the lawyer, he's not even talking about a real person. So vague. He hasn't even specified who this man is. I'm sure this man's going to be the neighbour. He hasn't even told me, is this my relative? Is it, my, is it a Roman citizen? Is it a Jewish person? I hope he's not going to say everyone is your neighbour. Jesus continues. The man was attacked and beaten up by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and left him half dead. He's lying on the ground wounded. He's bleeding and he's in horrible pain. He's in shock from the attack. He doesn't even know who it is that got him. They leapt out from behind a rock. Because his heart is beating so quickly and because he's in complete fear, his senses are heightened. And he sees in the distance a priest walking down the path and thinks to himself, good, here's someone from the temple. He must know what it is to love your neighbour as yourself and to love God. He will surely help me. But the priest had seen him too. And the wounded man knew that he'd seen him. Their eyes had met. Unfortunately, the priest had a different, a different understanding of neighbour than the man had. And this is often the case. When we are in trouble and we, we think that anybody else who has more money than us is our neighbour, who should be there for us, to help us. They are obliged to. When a refugee lands in Australia with nothing but their bags, if they're lucky to got their bags. They consider every Aussie to be their neighbour. The refugee assumes that every Aussie business owner will help them out. If there's, if there's a spare job going, that they'll help them out and have compassion. Because these Aussies are prosperous and living in safety. They're going to reach out and help me, thinks the refugee. But the Aussie looks at the refugee and has a different definition of neighbour. The Aussie sees all the suffering in Syria, the millions of people in camps across the world, and the Aussie thinks of the refugees coming to Australia, 
all the African and Asian and Middle Eastern faces he sees in the commission housing. And the Aussie thinks that, you know, I, that we have, we're having, starting to have a problem in Australia. There's a rise in gang violence amongst the Sudanese. There's Islamic extremism. And so the Aussie doesn't take a chance with the refugee neighbour because the Aussie thinks to himself, sure, we're on about looking after our mates and the spirit of Anzac and all that, but you have to be careful. So here lies a problem. The person who is need has one definition of neighbour and the person who can help has a different definition of neighbour. So this makes the lawyer's question quite good, a poignant question. If we're likely to all have our own definition of neighbour, then we have to define it. We have to have someone else define it, perhaps. Perhaps we need someone to give us the definition who knows what they are talking about. Consider this. Do you think the dirty person camping out next to the ATM with a little cardboard sign thinks of you as their neighbour? Do you think the elderly woman who lives in a block of units where you live, thinks of you as their neighbour? Do you think the awkward, slightly strange person who you work with thinks of you as their neighbour? Have you ever stopped to consider how much you push others away so that you don't have to consider them your neighbour? And this is what the priest in this parable was doing. He looked at the poor man and said to himself, poor bloke, I'm glad it didn't happen to me. He might have even prayed a thank you prayer to God on his way past for all the protection God had provided him, protecting him from thieves and catastrophes and even illness. And the priest thinks to himself, I can't stop now. The thieves might be lurking around the corner. I might have to get, might get hit on the head too. I have to keep going. And then the priest gets a little prick in his conscience. He thinks to himself, I mean, I know what the scriptures say, and perhaps I could do something. God has put this poor neighbour in my way. And the priest starts to walk towards the man, beaten up on the road, so that he can bind his wounds. And then all of a sudden the priest thinks to himself, but who is my neighbour? And in one stroke he releases himself from the obligation. I don't know him at all. He might even be a drug addict. He might be infectious. The priest thinks to himself, if it was just me, I, I could sacrifice my life for him, but I have my family and my work, my, my, uh, you know, my people, my flock that I look after. And actually, it would be bad stewardship if I was to get bopped on my head um, for the sake of for this, this one person. Um, we already have one person in trouble. We don't need to have two people in trouble. Anyway, I'm collecting collection money from the temple. So, The priest is able to think of a whole lot of reasons really quickly, isn't he? For why the poor man isn't his neighbour and why he should just keep walking. It's amazing how the, the most, even the most lame brain person who's stupid can be so sharp as a lawyer when it comes to excuses. As one theologian said, the road to hell is paved not merely with good intentions, but with good reasons. So the priest passed on the other side, but this whole process of self-justification didn't work very well. His conscience was not soothed at all. He had to make a wide detour 
so that he didn't have to look at the man. Because he knew deep down that one glimpse of the man looking him in the eye would potentially accuse him and undermine all the good reasons that he'd just come up with for not looking after him. None of us want to see the suffering around us. It's in our nature to avoid vulnerability. And to look at our neighbour's misery is the first step towards neighbourly love. Love always seizes the eyes first and then it leads to the hands doing something second. If I walk towards a person in the street who's asking for money, the easiest thing for me to do is to look down at my shoes and keep walking and not make eye contact. Because I know if I make eye contact, it's much harder to say no. They've disappeared from my sight if my eyes turn away. So at the last judgment, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, it is our eyes that will be judged first. When Jesus says to the people at the last judgment, For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. The accused people will say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or a sick person and did not help you? You did not see anything. And one day that priest will make the same excuse. He will point to his footprints on the road to, to the judge and he'll say, look, I, I actually just walked on the other side of the road. I didn't even really see him properly. How could I have even recognised that it was the Lord down there in the ditch? How easy is it to make a detour and see nothing? How easy is it to skim over the statistics in the newspaper? How easy is it to close our ears when appeals are made? During the Second World War in Germany, the, the, the church, Christians in the church, so many just were tuned out to the fact that there were death camps not far away from where they were living. They didn't want to know about it. What is it that we have our eyes and ears shut to? One of the re- main reasons we put uh, Aboriginal people up the front in church and talk about these issues is so that we can't make the excuse of looking away uh, because we want to be challenged. It's too easy in Melbourne, in this part of Melbourne, to not have to think about it if you don't want to. If you want to be confronted by the reality of extreme poverty, try walking through a slum and seeing the poo float through the same water where the people are washing their clothes. You and I, we're going to be judged by our eyes. And there are certain things and certain people I do not want to see but it might be Jesus that I've failed to look at. So the first commandment of neighbourly love is I control. I control. Look. Take notice. There's a Levite who passed on the other side as well. He had very similar thought, thought processes to the priest. And the only difference is he had a lecture to deliver and uh, he had to get to Jericho and do a lecture on brotherly love. And he made some quick calculations. If I get held up with this poor bloke, then I won't make it in time for my lecture. And if I stop now, I'm only helping one person. But if I do the lecture, I'll be helping a whole classroom of people. And I might even be able to inspire a whole generation and start a whole Good Samaritan Foundation and take over the world. 
this is really a simple utilitarian calculation. The greatest good for the greatest number of people. But of course, this was the devil's maths. The Levite was actually travelling down two paths in his, in his conscience. For the sake of the lecture on loving your neighbour, he was leaving his poor neighbour sick in a pool of blood. He was trying to serve God and at the same time dishonouring God's children. He was praying and at the same time spitting in the Lord's face. So the second commandment of love, love, love for neighbour, is to get control of your life and your conscience and get your priorities right. That's one big priority, one big commandment there. We should look carefully into the hearts, our own hearts, and uh, look at all the different rooms in our hearts where things go on and look at the room in your heart where you worship God, that room, because what you might find is there's a thin rice paper wall and on the other side of the wall is the devil's chapel, you know, and that um, you've got things side by side competing in your heart that you need to deal with so that you can love people properly. There's crazy stuff that goes on in our hearts and minds as people. There was a third person, verse 33, but a Samaritan as he travelled came where the man was and when he saw him he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll re- reimburse you for an extra expense you may have. And I don't need to point to the obvious about who the person is in this story um, who was doing what Jesus wanted the lawyer to do. <laughs> who, you know, who's showing neighbourly love in this story? Of course, it's the good Samaritan. And the, of course, the, the point of the parable is for us to identify with the priest and the Levite and repent. We have to remove the blinders from our eyes so that we can see who we are and how we are living. And the application is really simple. Verse 37, go and do likewise, says Jesus to the Samaritan, uh, to the lawyer. And we don't need to spend ages stewing on this part of the passage. We just need to do it. We don't need to get sidetracked on theological debate here. On, uh, you know, we could get caught up on, on the, all these kind of intellectual discussions about well, what about if I'm walking down the street and I see a person and then I suddenly realise my privilege as a white, middle-class, wealthy person, I don't want to oppress them any further than they're already oppressed as an Aboriginal person. You know, um, I, these are just priest and Levite excuses, aren't they? Do you really want to be facing Jesus on Judgment Day and say, you didn't love your neighbour because you didn't want to show unconscious racism? So I just didn't love my neighbour. Jesus would say, "You mean what you did is you walked on the other side of the road is what you did. If you want to know Jesus, the, the way to really learn is by not just hearing the word of God, but by doing it. You want to see Jesus? Look at the poor. Look at a prisoner. Look at a hungry person, a diseased person. Jesus is always in the depths. It's there that he comes to meet us. And the biggest danger for us, if we're going to talk about being middle class and Christian, is that we close our eyes to the suffering so that we can't see Jesus staring at us. If you want to be a loving Christian, you need to ask this question, who is my neighbour? The devil's been waiting for you to ask it. And he wants to whisper the, the most easy answer for you, the most convenient one. But what we've got to do is flip it. 
and say something different. Not who is my neighbour, but to whom am I a neighbour? Who is lying at my door? Who is expecting me to help them? Who is looking at me walking along the road towards them? This is the point of the parable. And if you want to love your neighbour, you must be prepared to have your plans interrupted. We cannot be controlled by our busy schedules. Busyness is one of the most common and the most tragic excuses for not loving your neighbour. We expect God to surprise us with blessings, but did you know he surprises you with challenges too? I'd suddenly realise God is a jazz musician. He is Miles Davis, he's Herbie Hancock, he's John Coltrane. He's jamming with you and he's changing the chords and he wants you to keep up. And he's saying, I've just, I've just moved up a semitone, have you, have you noticed? You can't stay in your key. Um, you have to prepare to move. The suffering man is on the path and it was only the Samaritan who's playing God's song. It's only the Samaritan who's willing to change his plans and, 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 and go and, and face and face this new difficult situation. So who is God putting in your path? Do you have time to even stop? Are you willing to change your plans? The third commandment of neighbour love is to be flexible, adaptable, manoeuvrable, and ready to improvise like a jazz musician. So remember it is Jesus also who's telling this parable. And of course Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. He's the one who became our true neighbour. And when you lay down one day on your bed to die and the world goes silent, we will be left in complete loneliness. We will leave behind all the people we love, our family and our children, our friends. But then in that very moment of despair, Jesus, our true neighbour, the neighbour who will not forsake us because he faced the ultimate thief, death, who struck Jesus down so that he would be able to walk with you down this terrible pathway. And when we experience the worst kind of terror that nobody else gets, we can be assured that we have one neighbour who understands because on the cross he submitted himself to go to the dark dungeon of ultimate loneliness. And when we stand on our own, shaking under the weight of our guilt, which nobody else would guess about you, which would cause many of your friends to desert you if they found out. Then, even in this lonely place, we have a neighbour who is not shocked because he stepped down from the heavenly throne room to earth and descended to the dead after the cross, to the pits of guilt and shame. Jesus loves us. He seeks us out. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he remains our closest friend. And it's in the knowledge of his perfect love for us that we are filled in our hearts for love for neighbour. Which one of us would want to refuse to honour Jesus in his poor and suffering children? All loving is an act of thanksgiving for his healing love for us. We grow in depth and maturity in our faith when we realise what God has done for us and when we pass that on to others. And then, and only then at that point, will we experience firsthand that sacrificial love makes us richer, not poorer, and that we gain our lives by losing our lives. And we really learn how to be a neighbour like Christ.